Hello everyone, it's September 10th, 2019. So the two big stories this week, ISRO makes an attempt at a moon landing, but not entirely successfully, and closer to home, two satellites play chicken. It's a terrifying game at orbital speeds. Speaking of orbits, let's find a good one and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 227 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. So, Dennis, I have to ask you, have you been dodging any missiles lately? I uh, heard that that's like a problem in your neck of the woods. <laughs> dodging missiles? No, I'm yeah, just... so you, so you don't know about this. So apparently a U.S. Air Force aircraft launched, like accidentally, some kind of an ordinance uh, was actually launched oh, in the crap. state of Arizona. Yeah. I figured you might have heard about that on the news or something, you know? I think I've just had my head down with work right now. I'm okay. kind of, I'm overwhelmed, but I'm still on top of things. But like, yeah, there's there's bombing ranges around us and the, you know, Davis Monthan Air Force Base in town. So there's a lot of, like, I love, like, there's going to be, like, uh, military craft flying overhead, like, all during the day, which is really nice to kind of see. Yeah. Those huge-ass cargo planes and all that. But um, <laughs> I got to look this up because... Yeah, yeah, apparently it was near Tucson, so that's actually where ah. it happened. Yeah, I'm seeing that now. Oh, near Mount Graham. That's where the large binocular telescope is. So at least, <laughs> yeah, at least that's, like, a good, you know, couple hundred miles, maybe a hundred mm-hmm. plus east of the city. But, wow, that's scary. Happily, that uh missed me. <laughs> so okay, I'm well, good. <laughs> Maybe some uh, poor people on the highway might have like seen something cruising by. Oh, look at that shooting star. I'm seeing it now, an accidental launch of a white phosphorus projectile in the Jackal military operations area. Oh, so... I found, yeah, and here, here's a line. It's used by the, their, because I, I know nothing about military missiles, but apparently white phosphorus is used by the military in various types of ammunition to produce smoke for concealing troop movement and to identify targets. So, okay, so that wasn't a, <laughs> you know, like... Yeah. So a smoke However bomb. Many, yeah, it was a smoke bomb. <laughs> I mean, you yeah. still don't want it in your backyard. That's mm-hmm. probably a bad yeah. Thing. It's it's still hundred degrees and still fairly dry in town. Although it did, I guess, rain last night. But mm. um, so as, it, I'm sure there's still a very high uh, fire danger all around yeah. in the desert. So that's good that it didn't start anything. Yeah, if that happened out here, we would be we'd be in trouble. <laughs> Thanks for the heads up. Now I got yeah. something else to worry about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. All right. So you want to move on to space then? Yeah. Let's go further up. All right. So moving on to uh, this week in spaceflight history. Uh, do we have any winners? Yeah, me. Hey. I won. <laughs> and uh, I, I, ha- I feel no qualms about saying that I won this time because this was a really good clue. And I'm very happy with this clue. I'm a little disappointed that nobody got the joy of guessing the clue. But I won. So the clue from last week was cloud-based navigation. And this week in spaceflight history is the 12th of September, 1959. It was the launch of Luna 2. So (laughs) I'm really happy about this. Um, So Luna 2 was the first anthropogenic object to contact the moon, as far as we know. Uh, So just a a little bit of history here. Um, Luna 1 was launched uh, in January of 1959. So just, you know, a few months earlier. Um, It missed the moon. It was intended to to be an impactor. It missed the moon and went into solar orbit. I think it actually became the first thing in in orbit of the sun. I could could be wrong about that. But anyway, so Luna 2 um, heads out to the moon. And the clue comes in because uh, it released a bunch of gaseous sodium. Um, so it made this giant cloud of sodium. And so the the main objective of that was to assist in navigation, to make sure that we were able to see this thing. 
um, because uh, Luna 2 was small enough that we couldn't see it with terrestrial satellites, right? Um, in fact, Luna 1, you also couldn't see with terrestrial satellites, and a lot of people believed that Luna 1 and Luna 2 were uh, Soviet propaganda and that they didn't actually fly. And so one of the things they did was um, they let out this huge cloud, which was, you know, partially for them to track, partially for the science to see what happens to gas and, you know, zero G and a vacuum, because that's not available on Earth, um, but also to assist in navigation. Um, and so they released enough sodium that it was visible in a big sphere, 650 kilometers in diameter. That's 400 miles. And that I think big. that's pretty cool. Yeah. And, you know, uh, humans have released a lot of gaseous sodium into the upper atmosphere, into space. So this isn't you know, unique in any way, but I thought it was interesting. Um, another thing that the Soviets did to try to prove that they uh, accomplished their mission is they had um, what were called pennants. Um, so they had uh, three different pennants. Two of them were um, spheres covered by 72 pentagons, sort of like a, a football or like a, like a soccer ball kind of thing. They were made out of titanium alloy and they had the state emblem etched into some of them and the launch month and year etched into others. Um, not the day, which is good because they the launch was delayed by a day. And then inside uh, the spheres, they had explosive charges that would um, shatter them and cause all these little pentagons to go spread out, kind of like a flechette. Um, and then there was actually a, a third pennant that I didn't know about until I was researching this story. Um, they also had aluminum strips uh, like embossed in the upper stage of the rocket. Um, and, you know, the upper stage also impacted in the moon. The only thing is we're like 90% sure that none of these emblems or these pennants uh, still exist um, because they hit the moon so hard that they definitely deformed, but likely were actually gasified. So, uh, oh, wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so as far as we know, the moon is not covered with uh, USSR logos. So speaking of uh, people not believing that Luna 2 was an actual mission, the, the USSR was a little upset but with this. And so they actually um, talked to uh, Bernard Lovell. He was an astronomer at the University of Manchester and told him exactly what their you know orbital parameters were and said, here's when we're going to be hitting the moon. Here's where we're going to be doing it. And so he was able to observe the last five hours before impact. Um, and he used radio telescopy. Is that, yeah. is that the right word, Dennis? I've never heard of teloscopy. Yeah, teloscopy. Telescopy. I, I mean, <laughs> I've heard teloscopy as a word before. Teloscopy. So. Uh, maybe I'm making things up. But he, uh, <laughs> he uh, observed the radio transmissions back. And like I said, he observed the last five hours. So he confirmed that there was something uh, broadcasting what sounded like a signal from the moon. Uh, but, you know, it, it must not have been uh, a radio telescope that he was using because he wasn't able to locate it spatially. Instead, he used uh, the Doppler shift to confirm that the uh, origin of the signals wasn't terrestrial, right? So, um, you know, it's not a plane flying overhead. It's not a, um, a satellite in orbit. It is actually something moving fast enough to get to the moon which is just as good as saying it's something speeding towards the moon. And then what's fantastic is that he actually had to play his recordings back to American media over the phone to convince them that this had actually happened. And, uh, you know, this, the space race is, is so fascinating to me. Uh, so first human object to impact the moon, what did we smash into it? 
uh, I was able to find four uh, experiments other than the than the sodium cloud. Uh, there was a scintillation counter for radiation, so a Geiger counter. Um, I was looking at radiation between here. Oh, actually, no, it's a uh, scintillation counter. Is that the same thing as a Geiger counter? It's sort of. Scintillation is, uh, that's when uh, it passes through a crystal, and then you see the little kind of light flicker, and then you measure uh -huh. the light that way. So that might be how, or yeah, or in this case, if it's not a crystal, it could be a liquid detector as well so if it's tranquil radiation then it's liquid but um okay. i think geiger counters i think are more of a uh, kind of generic a generic uh, term okay yeah yeah so that i guess i would make it three experiments a scintillation counter that was looking uh to determine the electron spectrum of the van allen belt right because we only thought there was one at that point um there was also like you mentioned a cherenkov radiation detector which was looking for charged particles um, I'm not sure if they were looking for solar, uh, solar wind radiation, or if we just knew that there were these bands of radiation. We weren't sure where they were coming from. And then there was also a three-axis magnetometer, which is very fancy. And also, I don't know if you've ever played with a three-axis magnetometer, but they're really difficult to to use. The data doesn't doesn't make intuitive sense like an accelerometer does. They're a little more complicated. But it wasn't just a magnetometer; it was actually a three-axis magnetometer. Um, but there you go. Uh, launch a Luna two this week. That's uh, this week in spaceflight history. Cool. So, what is our clue for next week? Let's see if you can stump them twice in a row. <laughs> the, this is another really good clue, you guys. Next week in 1968. This time, the tortoise ran circles around the hare. It's another tough clue, but I think it's a good one. Yeah. Well, I feel like that gives us something to work with. I mean, 1968, that's a good time for things happening in space. And mm -hmm. the tortoise ran circles around the hare. Okay. All right. Well, I don't know as usual, but if anyone out there thinks that they do, <laughs> uh, just tweet us with the hashtag this week, SF, and good luck. Yeah. Good luck, everybody. Top story, Chandrayaan 2's successful mission. So, or that's a weird uh, title there, I guess. Well, I, wrote I didn't that. know that, for that to be the official title, but it, yeah. successful orbiter. Successful uh, orbiter mission. The, the right. orbiter is successful so far. That's yeah. <laughs> so I wrote a little timeline here I thought was a nice way to kind of uh, see how to approach things. And uh, the upshot is, right, Chandrayaan 2, it's, you know, ISRO's lunar mission that had an orbiter and then a lander with a rover within it, right? And the lander was Vikram, the rover was uh, Pragyan, and the orbiter is just Chandrayaan-2, I guess. And so, uh, which, as far as ISRO's very literal naming conventions go, I didn't realize that that extended to Chandrayaan and Mangalyaan as well, which just means moon vehicle and uh, Mars vehicle as well. So oh, okay. They are <laughs> literal across the board. My friend from... Uh, He's Bengali, and he was. Uh, we hung out a couple nights ago, and he, you know, I, I mentioned this to him, and he was like, "Yeah," and he kind of explained the translations for them to me, and I was like, "Oh, well, they are literal across the board, <laughs> except for the lander and rover, I guess." But yeah, so this, you know, things really started, I guess, September second, when uh, the Vikram lander separated from the orbiter. At that point, it was in a 119 by 127 kilometer orbit, 
And then it did uh, a burn the next day, a retro burn to verify that the propulsion system was working and that brought it to a slightly lower orbit. And then the day after that, September 4th, it did a nine second burn to, you know, significantly lower the orbit so that now it had a uh, paraloon of 33 kilometers. Ooh, good word. Ah. <laughs> and uh, so then we had uh, the next day or a couple days later, September 6th. 15 minutes, uh, T minus 15 minutes before landing, they actually began the powered descent. So all of this, you know, uh, happened uh, within really just, yeah, just 15 minutes was sort of the uh, the main thrust of the uh, descent phase for the mission. And so everything was good and nominal for the 10 minutes at T minus 5. It had a velocity of about 450 meters per second. It had come down to 20 kilometers above the surface. T minus 3 minutes. Uh, the rough braking phase was over and they began uh, the fine navigation phase, which uh, you could see some cool uh, tweets by a, uh, an astronomer, Seas uh, Bassa, who uh, does a lot of tracking with low frequency radio, does a lot of tracking uh, spacecraft. Uh, and so he was able to show us kind of Doppler I don't know, radiograms, I think is the term, as far as, far as we're talking yeah, about jargon. Yeah, I, I would call right? them I would call them curves, right? Mm. But yeah, radio radiogram price is probably a pretty good descriptor. Well, in any event, right? Yeah, so so you get to see the kind of Doppler signal as a function of time at different frequencies, and you can see how there's kind of a, a sharp break in it where uh, it goes from being the kind of rough uh, breaking yeah. phase to finer navigation. Yeah, and th this is the same astronomer who. Uh, basically was able to confirm that, you know, Bereshit was no longer transmitting to us when it had its failed landing a couple months ago. So uh, at T minus two minutes, uh, the altitude got to uh, about 400 meters. But at that point, there was no more communication. And I think uh, 330 meters was the uh, lowest altitude telemetry that anything had gotten that, that the uh, uh, Israel had received. And at T plus one minute, the signal was uh, kind of confirmed lost by the same kind of uh, astronomers. So it wasn't even ISRO necessarily that we got that information from. And so uh, we got the official messages from them, you know, later, like maybe I think half hour, an hour after this had all happened. They kind of mm. gave some official statements, including from the prime minister uh, and Narendra Modi himself was there. But uh, yeah, so the upshot is it looks like that the lander had landed. Okay. Uh, but things went awry at about 2.1 kilometers. There's this uh, image kind of showing where how it deviated from its trajectory there. And um, it turns out uh, ISRO's chairman, Kaila Savadivu uh, Sivan, the chairman, he uh, was, I got the quote here, the last part of the operation was not executed in the right manner. It was in that mm -hmm. phase that we lost link with the lander and could not establish contact subsequently. So that is really mm -hmm. disheartening when we, we've had minutes until the actual landing. And so uh, it's still a developing story. We don't know what went wrong there. But we do know uh, a few days later, so this was actually uh, today as of the recording, uh, Sunday, September 8th, that the lander is on the surface. So, I mean, I guess we kind of knew that, but it's the hard landing was confirmed. But there is still a very long shot that the lander might not have, it might not be entirely inoperable. If it's if it landed in the right orientation, that it can still draw power from its solar panels then maybe, you know, we can get some reestablished communication with it. 
which don't count on that, but that's not officially ruled out. Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at the the Doppler data, it looks like it was tumbling at the end there. I would be really shocked if this was recoverable. Right, right. Yeah, you do see the kind of wiggles in the uh, yeah that radiogram. Um, yeah. So that's the likelihood, right? If you had a tumbling craft, what are the chances that it lands upright? <laughs> you mm-hmm. know. <laughs> I guess less than 50%, depending on the shape of it. So. Right. <laughs> Most likely. Well, and, and, you know, higher speeds than intended. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. I think the last I, I heard somebody, uh, the, the last telemetry gave something like still 30 meters per second. At yeah, that's, so... that's pretty darn fast. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's rough. And that, that's before it continues accelerating, right? That's, that's last contact, or is that off of the Doppler before it disappeared from the Doppler? That was, I think, last contact is how I read that. Yeah, because if, if it stopped its breaking burn at that point, then it's only going to go faster. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, if that was, what, a couple kilometers above the surface, right? It deviated at 2.1, but I think the tele- I think mm. the, they still got telemetry closer to the surface, to like 400 meters. Okay, so, so 400 that's, meters. It's a fall. That's yeah. a fall. It's not man. necessarily, yeah. It, it's better not, than two it, kilometers. Yeah, it's not, right. It's not Luna 2, but that's. Uh... <laughs> so it was, it was designed for a lunar uh, 14 days, so one lunar, you know, daytime period. So they're going to basically just try to establish you know, communications uh, for next couple of weeks. But otherwise, you know, they didn't say anything about the rover, but I imagine the rover is totally kaput mm. uh, mm-hmm. or at least inoperable. Like they wouldn't be able to uh, deploy it. So, you know, fingers crossed, I guess stranger things have happened, but you know, <laughs> I'm thinking of like, as far as the tumbling goes, right. It's like, you ever seen the people that are like flick a uh, dry erase marker and get it to manage to land upright. <laughs> <laughs> Like, it's unlikely. <laughs> mm-hmm. I guess this can't be qualified as a complete success or an actual landing on the moon or a successful one, but because they were trying to become the fourth nation to do so, right? Because we have America, mm-hmm. Russia, or at the time, I guess, the Soviet Union, and then China. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, a couple months ago, we had Bear Sheet. They didn't make it, and now we have this. So the moon, mm-hmm. yeah, the it's moon tough, is, uh, I guess the moon is still our harsh mistress, right? <laughs> yep. I mean, it's space in general, like... All of this is just, it's so exacting. It's its one of the most, I mean, it, you know, we're kind of biased uh, being a space show, but like this is one of the one of the best things that humanity can, can try to do, you know? It mm-hmm. just, it requires our best and it requires so much cooperation. I think that's just fantastic. It is super, super impressive when you are able to pull it off. Because we talked about this before, but like, you know, as we're discussing it, I'm visualizing the thing actually, you know, in orbit around the moon and approaching whatnot. But again, what they're doing are complex tasks here on Earth based mm-hmm. on telemetry that they're receiving. You know what I mean? And so you're doing this remotely. It's very complicated. And so, you know, it's disheartening, but not terribly unsurprising that these things happen. And so we just had two two in a row now. Well, and this is this is like... Uh, 80% success, right? They they got it all the way out there. They got an orbiter and like that's that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like even just crashing something into the moon. So like you said, so few people have even done that. So, you know, getting almost all the way there. I wouldn't even say that's disheartening. I think that's something to to be proud of. 
mm-hmm. as as a species. Like, look how right, many right. individual groups of ours have have gone and done this. That that is a great point. I think it's very likely that obviously within the next couple of years there will be a successful landing, if not by ISRO, then you know by the Bearsheet team, because I think that they're trying again, right? So I mean, this is bound to happen, and they're getting tantalizingly close. So mm-hmm. uh, it's just a matter of time, but it's really neat to see these steps being taken and coming so close but it's just that it's it's, it's really just those last couple of kilometers that are you know such a pain <laughs> because you have to you know shed all that velocity and then you just have to like stick yep. this landing yeah and even and even looking at just the lander itself they got a lot of useful info from new technology that they were testing with the lander so i mean it's not just you know whistling dixie saying that you know yeah sure it was a hard landing but they got so close so that's a success i mean there's actual practical data that they have that they'll be able to apply to future vehicles uh, because of vikram coming that close so that's essentially uh where chandrayaan 2 is at the orbiter's healthy and we're still waiting to see whether or not First off, what happened with the lander during the final phase of the descent and whether or not the long shot that they'd be able to reestablish communication with it. But uh, in the meantime, Chandrayaan-3, which, you know, Mooncraft-3 will be uh, aiming for a 2024 launch. And that one will also have a rover. So maybe we'll get another shot at having an ISRO lander scooting around on the surface. So good luck to ISRO in the future. And let's translate on over to a second story. So Isa's dodging SpaceX or uh, Aeolus dodges a Starlink, right? So this is mm-hmm. kind of the second, not a big story, but kind of an interesting one, or certainly one that has people talking, which is uh, you have a Starlink satellite, which nearly collided with an ESA, I believe it's a weather satellite for atmospheric monitoring or something like that. And, um, mm-hmm. and there was a projected collision possibility, or it was determined, I guess, by the Air Force, but I'll get to that in a second, but I'm not sure who first picked up on this, but there was a possibility of a collision And the story, or at least as I heard it at first, was that SpaceX kind of ignored it and said, yeah, we're not going to move. And like ESA had to make the decision to move their spacecraft instead. Well, well, that's what I heard. But that's not what ended up happening or, you know, but yeah. Uh Right. So that's what I that, first That was heard. definitely the story that was going around. Right. 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 And that's pretty much the only thing that I had heard. And I was kind of waiting for further details. So apparently, according to Space.com, the actual story is it's a little bit more complicated than that. But I guess we should first uh, talk about what necessitates a debris avoidance maneuver or a collision avoidance maneuver, I guess I should say. So that's if there's a one in 10,000 chance of a collision. And I think that that's just kind of like, you know, universally agreed upon, but there's no, I guess it's not official, but it's just Mm -hmm. kind of something. Yeah, there's no international treaty saying, you know, this is the threshold, but everybody pretty much goes with the same number. Yeah. So the first determination was that the risk was only about one in 50,000. And this is what I'm not sure about who made that determination was that the Air Force as well, because I couldn't find actual confirmation that it was the Air Force that first brought this up. Yes, that's apparently I looked into kind of how this is done and it's really informal. And that's why I think this Mm -hmm. is an important news story, given that these mega constellations are our future. But it looks like the 18th Space Control Squadron goes and basically notifies the relevant parties and then they kind of just email each other to kind of determine yep. what steps to take i mean does that sound right ben yeah no that that's a hundred percent right and it i mean it, it's tough there are multiple people who will you know keep track of as many satellites as they can and look for collisions but yeah i mean you know if the air force tells you something's up mm-hmm. um it, it mm-hmm. seems really weird to just 
email each other, but that's, I mean, that's genuinely <laughs> the, the way that this thing gets, gets handled. I mean, there, there's no, you know, uh, Slack channel just for people with satellites. The U.S. military does handle this for the most part, but as far as I could tell, it was the updated notification of a 1 in 1,000 chance risk of a collision. But the first time around, I wasn't sure who had like actually made that assessment. But yeah, the risk was actually determined to be 1 in 1,000. So at that point, ESA got the alert, and SpaceX says that they didn't. And that's where I think the confusion comes in, is that at first, like we all kind of thought that they had just ignored it. But no, they're saying that they just didn't get the email or the alert specifically they have what's called an on-call paging system i don't know what that is and i don't know how it works but they say that there's a bug in that system and so they should have gotten the alert but they didn't then they were contacted by isa who said hey like are you going to move your spacecraft and they were like well no it's just a one in fifty thousand chance but actually at that point it was much higher i mean this so, this paging system like is that just like their outlook you know flags anything coming from the air force as like this is really important you know pop up I on guess, my phone yeah. as a notification you know i don't <laughs> probably uh and you know they probably use something like pager duty to send alerts out to to cell phones but yeah i mean it, it's exactly what you think an on call paging system it's it really truly um a lot of people literally use pagers but somebody do they really likes, use them these days like, yes why would yes you... absolutely because they're reliable and a phone's not like how is a phone... um no a phone is less reliable than a pager um phones are used for multiple things so their batteries die faster you can put a cell phone on vibrate and ignore it. Whereas if you are sent home with a pager, you're more likely to keep that on you and to, to pay specific attention to it because you're not getting Facebook notifications through it. Yeah, there, there are a number of reasons why why a pager would be more reliable. I mean, I can think of ways right now on my phone to make it so that no matter if it's in silent mode or what, I will get the notification because mm-hmm. you can bypass that. And of course, you would it would have to be kind of like, you know, a company phone, if you will, but it could still be a phone instead of a separate piece of hardware. But I guess that people want to have their own phone and then have their work stuff. Yeah, know, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't make the mistake of of overestimating people's technical competence. Um, when you're trying to page a, a large group of people, and you know, mostly like on call pager stuff is is used by sysadmins. You know, like, mm-hmm. but like if you've got a hospital full of doctors, it, you know, if you have a certain number of people who are available for on-call duty at some point during the week. Uh, there's no way I'd say, okay, let's use your personal cell phone and, oh, don't forget to click this and click that and make sure this is charged. Mm-hmm. I would just give them a pager and say, go home with the pager. Exactly. Like, yeah, David, you, 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 I, I would trust you, but like when you scale things right. up to a, <laughs> exactly. uh, a company or an organization, right. when you're at that level, then you just kind of have to have a policy, I guess that. Yeah, I guess a one size fits all. Yeah. So I guess that does explain it a little bit to me because I couldn't fathom, like, I didn't even know they made pagers anymore. I didn't know that was still a thing. Like, they, <laughs> yeah. they, they still They're have They're niche, them. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So it's an on-call paging system, but I guess it's not working. And this... I, I will, I'll bet you, David, I bet you you're absolutely right that they had basically an if this, then that rule set up on Outlook. And when they see uh, an incoming email that looks like it's important, they'll flag the correct person. I, I'll bet mm-hmm. you dollars to donuts that's exactly <laughs> what happened. 
And I don't know anything about pagers, but that sounds about right for computers. Mm -hmm. If somebody missed, had a typo in a, in a rule somewhere, you know? (laughs) Yeah. It's, they're using the fancy jargon just for the sake of, it's like when you, you know, you have to turn something off and back on talking about cycling power, you know? Cycling power. (laughs) So what ended up happening was like Isa had to make the maneuver and that happened on the 2nd of September. And that was just one half of an orbit before the possible collision. So, you know, that's when they made the maneuver and they can do that. And so that kind of got me thinking about what SpaceX could have possibly done at this point. I don't know, but we can talk about that in a second. But first off, the ESA spacecraft was actually orbiting at 320 kilometers, which should have been below the orbit of the Starlink constellation, which was at 445 kilometers. But the speculation is that this was a like either a dead satellite or possibly one that was just um, being intentionally deorbited to like demonstrate that they can do so for the FCC. So if that's the case, there might be kind of like an ulterior type of a motivation that maybe they didn't want to move it because they had a mission to do. And they were like, hey, we can't do this because we have to make this demonstration. Although I don't think that that's the case. Um, But that Mm -hmm. is what some people had said was that they had a mission to get done and they didn't want to mess that up. So they just want to keep it like on its deorbiting path. But uh, I mean, who can say? But I kind of doubt that that's what happened because it seems like, you know, the whole paging system is actually what's at fault here. If you go with their official statement, they said if they knew about the one in a thousand chance, they would have, you know, Mm -hmm. been more than happy to move and work with ESA. Yeah, they uh, would have consulted with them. Yeah. But that kind of makes you wonder, depending on how far out the collision is, what can they do? Because uh, they just have those little, what is it, uh, Krypton thrusters, which you mm. know don't provide a lot of thrust. And I'm kind of wondering how much time is necessary to get them outside of that window of like the one in 1,000 chance, like to get them mm-hmm. all the way back up to just above a one in 10,000 chance, how much time is necessary? Probably not as much as you'd think, because, you know, small moves can create rather large differences in your orbit. But Still. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Can you move something by say three meters per second that's five hundred pounds with a Krypton thruster within I guess what half an orbit, so that's like forty five minutes. Can that be done? I'm not so sure about that. I so I, I think that it would at least need to be several orbits out, if not several days out. Yeah, to try to to try to cheat at that, I I, you know, I tried pulling up values of uh, that Jonathan McDowell, right? Because he just loves tracing Starlink, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, all the all the satellites. And, you know, those are, he shows a lot of figures of height uh, versus time, but the time is on the order of days. Yeah, I mean, it, we're talking about probability. So it really, it really depends on how much of an avoidance you want, you know? Mm-hmm. But I guess the question is how much thrust do those things generate? And we know that the Starlink is about 500 pounds, so that's how massive the spacecraft is. So what kind of a delta V can you affect within half an orbit? And keeping in mind that that delta V is spread out over the entire half of an orbit, so you have Mm -hmm. to integrate those changes over yeah it gets yeah it turns into a headache real quick orbital mechanics with ion thrusters that's a good point yeah it's not an instantaneous burn or or even just one over a short period of time but it's like the whole time yeah i i think most people treat traditional rocket engine burns as instantaneous i think a lot of the time Mm -hmm. they just say okay this happens at one instant in the orbit and then we'll pick up the yeah (laughs) uh, the differences after the burn happens Let's do just two short and sweets this week. And what's the first one, Dennis? First up, we've got the target marker operation and dress rehearsal for Hayabusa 2 have been postponed. 
Two weeks ago, one of Hayabusa 2's four RCS wheels was found to be giving anomalously high torque readings, which led the spacecraft heading to its safe hold position. This maneuver now means the spacecraft needs to return to its home position, 20 kilometers above Ryugu's surface, before it can continue with its next steps. A dress rehearsal of the Minerva 2 rover deployment, and the dropping of two target markers from an altitude of one kilometer. The new schedule has yet to be determined after this delay. And next, w first passes PDR. So near the end of phase B, preliminary design review is a critical step a mission must pass before hitting key decision point C and passing into phase C, which is final design fabrication. w first just passed PDR this week. The satellite is built around a spy satellite mirror provided by the NRO but its future is nowhere near certain, as NASA already attempted to cancel the exoplanet Hunter last year, but was directed by Congress to continue. Free Hubble, as we like to call it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Considering that the precursor to NRO has got many Hubbles, both in, or not many Hubbles, copies of Hubble, both in space mm -hmm. and on the ground. Yeah. All right. No questions, comments, and corrections. So moving right along to upcoming spaceflight events. And once again, as I think we said last month, not many of those coming up, but we got a little something. So I know we already decided that this was going to be before our show came out, but I'm pretty sure that the HTV-8 uh, is launching at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time on Tuesday the 10th. Maybe the NASA TV schedule is uh, is wrong, but it will be rendezvousing and capturing at the station on Saturday the 14th. So coverage will begin at 5.30 a.m. Eastern Time. Capture is scheduled at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, and then installation uh, coverage begins at 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time, also on September 14th, which is Saturday. So that'll be kind of cool. That's a nice thing to throw up on. If you're awake at that time, it's a nice thing to throw up on a monitor and uh, just mm -hmm. have kind of running in the background. All right. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And that might be it until the end of the month. So <laughs> until the 30th of September. Wow. Okay. All right. Take a break. <laughs> so let's uh, go ahead and deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 note Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the Orbital Mechanic mechanics.com slash support for our patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources for more information on this episode such as show notes and other links visit our website at the orbitalmechanics.com be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies you can talk about the show with other listeners on twitter and reddit we're orbital podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at the orbitalmechanics.com all right that's it we'll see you next week on orbit until then later all right, bye everybody see you